Christ is risen. He's still risen. It's good to be, it's good to be here. It's good to be back uh, preaching. Uh, I have missed it. Um, we start a new series in First Corinthians, and we could be here a very long time. We could be here a very long time. But I'm excited what we're going to be able to cover through this study, and I think it will certainly be very, very um, important and um, crucial for even us as a church body here at Crosspoint, that we understand the themes and some of the things that are going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. So this morning, the title of this opening message, the first sermon of 1 Corinthians called The Church Called and in Christ. And this morning, hopefully we're going to understand this, is that God has called and gifted the church as they wait for the return of Christ. Uh, just to get kind of a good grasp on what the book is all about, if you received an email this past week, you saw a little video um, kind of uh, giving some instructions on how to go about handling First Corinthians. So hopefully that was helpful, uh, big overview. But let me go ahead and just kind of give you an idea of what the picture that's being painted in the book of First Corinthians is that in this church <clears throat> in Corinth, there's a lot of divides and division going on, a lot of factions that have been created uh, among the Corinthian church. And, you know, so much so that me and Shane almost called this series Messy Church, because um, it is certainly a messy church here in Corinth. And, uh, and so uh, they're going to be dealing with a lot of different things, because they seem to have found so many reasons to divide and conquer themselves. In the course of the book of Corinthians, they're going to be talking about things like uh, leaders, food, how to handle sin, the resurrection, the color of the carpet, all these different things. Just joking on the color of the carpet. I don't want to lead anybody astray. Um, but all of these things, if they've created their own groupings and factions and think, well, I think this way, I follow this guy, I do this, I do. And so they've created their own kind of little, little clubs, you could say, within the own, uh, their own Corinthian church. And so if, they're, if they can have an argument on these things, the Corinthians are going to have it. And they're going to have it twice, right? And so, and this is exactly why Paul writes this letter. Is that he is aware of everything that is going on in the Corinthian church, in the, in the divisions and the factions that have been created. And so he's writing to exhort them, to rebuke them, to encourage them, to remind them that despite their differences, despite whatever they differ on in the little things, that they are still united around the most important important thing, the most important shared interest they have, and that is the gospel. That despite their little differences and their little tiffs here and there, is that they still have the same common denominator, and that is the gospel. Yes, they are a flawed people. Yes, they have many differences, but those are insignificant when it comes to what they have together in Christ. It's insignificant. And so, this letter is meant to encourage church unity by reminding them and reminding us that we are a flawed people united by a flawless gospel. A flawed people, that is us, united by a flawless, perfect gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with the goal of unity in mind as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, with the goal of unity in mind, I, Paul's going to remind us just in these first nine verses as he kind of intros into the book, He's going to remind us of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. Who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. 
And so let's consider three points. And the first one we want to consider this morning is this, is the church of God in Christ. The church of God in Christ. Looking at the first three verses, the point is this. Is it the church? The church, Big C, is God's people in every place who are united in Christ. The Big C church is God's people in every place who are united in Christ. And so Paul is going to enter into this letter in 1 Corinthians like he does in many other letters. He's going to say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, basically giving his authentication, basically. Saying, like, this is, this is why I have the authority to say these things to you. is because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that has not been determined by me. That has not been approval by a committee. That has been approved by God himself. He has given that approval. Paul called by what? The will of who? By the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He doesn't derive this authority from any other group, from any other person, from any other man, from any other community. He gets his authority from God himself. And this is why he can write these things. And so just as the Corinthians are a called people, is that he is also called as well, called to be an apostle. Everything that he does and is, he attributes to God alone. And that in his apostleship, he writes. He writes something. He writes a letter. And he writes a letter to a particular group of people, to the church that is meeting in Corinth. The church of God that is located there in Corinth. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And that they are the church of God. Church. It's a pretty distinct group. A church. is It's a distinct group of people made up of people who have been ransomed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That they're unlike any other group that's known. If you, uh, if you remember when you entered junior high, I know for many of you that was only a couple years ago. Um, but when I entered junior high, Drypong Junior High, you know, they give you a list of all these clubs that you can join. You know, you can join the Ag Club, which was the big club in Dry Prong. Everybody, everybody wants to be part of the Ag Club. Anybody know what the Ag Club is? Agriculture. You want to be part of the Ag Club. You had the Key Club, or you had the Beta Club. Remember Beta Club, smart, smart kids? Wasn't part of it. Uh, you got the Beta Club. You got the, uh, the Green Thumb Club. I don't even know what that was. Uh, the art club, the uh, all these things, 4-H club, uh, all these clubs that you could join and you could be a part of, and even even now we have clubs as adults. We have, uh, you know, you have Rotary clubs, you have Lions clubs, you have um, homeowners associations. Even if you want, if you want to call that a club, uh, it, you know, uh, political parties, clubs. But but Paul wants to make a very big difference in what a club is and then what a church is. A church is not a club. And a club is not a church. Is that this group of people is called a church because they are completely distinct from anything, anything else in this world that brings associations of people together. Is that they are much different. There is nothing like this. Is that the church is not a club that you learn the secret handshake and you get in through the door. This is not the He-Man Woman Havers Club, as little rascals say. That this is completely different. Is that the church is a unique set of people set apart by God who have been redeemed and reconciled by the death of Jesus Christ. And like Paul, who has been called by the will of God to be an apostle, is that the arrangement of the church is solely by the power and authority of God himself. Is that God arranges the church himself, and he has the power and authority to do so. And this is why it's described as the church of God. Of God. Of God is, a, I know it's just two words, 
but it's two big words of God. This is not the church of Wes. This is not the church of uh, this committee. This is not the church of this or that. This is the church of God. And so this is a distinct set of people that God establishes. Now, before we venture off, yes, God does call people. God does call individuals. But he doesn't just call individuals into just continuing to be individuals. But God calls out individuals out of darkness into a community of people. Look at what he says here. He says, the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What's the next word? You might know. Together. Together. Called to be saints together. So God calls us out of darkness as individuals into his glorious light, but not to be on our own. He calls us as his saints, and he sets us apart to be together. God calls the believer into a community, not onto a remote island. And so those who are set apart by God, they are set apart into a community of people. Into a community of people. And this community of people has this in common. It's all those who have called upon the name of the Lord. That's what he says here in these first three verses. That the distinct feature among this group of people who have been who have been called into a community called the church is that they've called upon the name of the Lord, which is a pretty interesting phrase to speak about believers. He could have just said, it's all believers. No, he says, it's these people who have called upon the name of the Lord, which is a phrase that you can find a lot of places in the Old Testament. You can find it in the early chapters of Genesis that these people called upon the name of the Lord. Happens a lot in the prophets. It's the way in which the Bible distinguishes the people who have pledged their allegiance to Yahweh in the Old Testament is that it's these people who have called upon the name of the Lord and pledged themselves to this God. And so he's saying, all these people who are part of this church, who have been called into a community, these people have the distinguishing feature is that they have, been, they have called upon the name of the Lord. This is what distinguishes them. And some, some people say that Paul here is actually quoting from Old Testament when he says this phrase, Joel 2.32. You can write this down on your, your outline, but it says this. And this shall come to pass, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So the distinguishing feature of this people group who have been called into communities is that they've called upon the name of the Lord. And it's not just people in Corinth. It's not just people in Corinth. So before the Corinthians think, oh, this is just all about us, everybody who's called upon the name of the Lord here, and we've been brought into community, he says, no, it's people in every place. Look at this. So they've been called to be saints together with all those who in every place. Every place. I don't know if you were like me as a kid. Most of you were probably not like me as a kid. If you are, sorry, scary, right? Is that... McDonald's, for me, was like one of a kind. There is no other place like this on the face of the earth. It's a place that you come. And you, they give you a hamburger. They give you fries, a drink. And then there's a toy in the box. And then they have a playground over here. There, this is a one of a kind place. Who, God must have created this. There's nothing like it. And then you grow up and you realize McDonald's is a chain that exists in over 119 countries. And you realize that McDonald's right down the street from you is really not that special. 
because your your horizons have been broadened, and you're like, whoa, this is global. <laughs> this is much bigger than uh, you know the the McDonald's in Pineville, Louisiana, right? That everybody hangs out at. No, you you realize that that you know, your perspective is is widened out, and you see, man, I, this is just. This McDonald's right here is just one small component of all this larger chain. And I think there's something similar going on here in the first three verses that Paul's trying to do. He's trying to get the Corinthians to zoom out and see that your church is part of a larger whole. Your church is part of a larger whole. Is that you are not the only thing on this earth. Is that you are a part of a larger, this local church here in Corinth is part of a larger universal church. Where it consists of everyone who is called upon the name of the Lord. And so the church in Corinth is much is, is a small piece of a part of God's universal church. And it tells us that God isn't just doing a work here in Corinth, but everywhere where the name of Christ is named. Is that God isn't just confined to Corinth. He isn't just kind of uh, uh, confined here and said that only God works in Corinth. No. Is that he's setting apart a people for himself from every from every place. They, the church in Corinth, is part of the universal church of all believers who call upon Jesus in every place. And so what this should do for us, Crosspoint Group, is that this idea of broadening our perspective, that Crosspoint is not the center of the universe, and that we are not, ju- we are not the, the one-of-a-kind thing on the block. Yes, we are beautiful in, you know, in and of, our, of ourselves, but we are part of a larger whole of what God is doing in the world to bring glory to his name. And that we are a part of this universal church. And so this should, this should break down any elitism, any superiority, any dominance that we may think that we have over any other Christian or over any other church. Because we are part of a larger whole. Corinth is part of God's people who just, and they just happen to have been sovereignly placed there in Corinth to bring glory to God. Anthony Thistleton says it like this. Corinth is not the only pebble on the beach. And that's good to remind us as well. Is that, yes, God has brought together this group of people here at Corinth. I was about to say, call y'all Corinth. <laughs> you don't want to be Corinth. This people at Crosspoint has brought us here. Is that if you here are a member at Crosspoint, it's not by accident. Is that God has, has orchestrated for you to be a part of this community here at Crosspoint. And it is a beautiful thing to be part of this community here at Crosspoint. But we are part of a larger whole of what God is doing in the world to bring people to himself and for people all across the world who are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We are part of a larger whole. And so to emphasize this, to emphasize this broad perspective of the church, he says this, all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, in a simple way, Jesus can be shared. <laughs> no, 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 he's mine, he's mine. <laughs> there ain't enough of them go around, right? Is that, no, he's saying that Jesus is Lord, not just of Corinth, but of the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Asia, the church in Rome, the church in, in, in South America, the church in Japan, the church in Louisiana, the church in Baton Rouge, the church of Crosspoint. Is that he is our Lord and he is their Lord. Jesus is Lord over all people who call upon the name of the Lord and are part of this community. And so 
Here's a couple of pieces of application I think we can think through about this, these first three verses as we is that in these first three verses, I think we're reminded of the importance of community when it comes to being those who are called and who are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Is that you've probably heard, I don't need anybody else. I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. Uh, people other people are the problem. I can do this on my own, right? Well, let me just warn you, Crosspoint, those watching online, the Bible has no category for rogue Christians. The Bible doesn't have a category for a, uh, what Craig Blomberg says, for a lone ranger Christian. There's no category for that kind of person. Say, I can do it on my own. I don't need other people. No, God has called you out of darkness into his glorious light to be a part of a community who has experienced the very same thing. There is no such thing as a rogue Christian. Is that the Bible presents the Christian as an intimately connected person to other people in the context of a church. Is that when we are called out to, to follow Jesus, we are called into a community of other people who are also following Jesus. And God knows what he's doing when he does this because he knows that we desperately need help following Jesus. He knows it. He knows that this life will be hard and on your own you will only fail. But by the power of God and the grace that he gives us and the power of his spirit that he puts within us, guess what? He gives us this community of faith that help us along the way. There's no such thing as a rogue Christian. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a lone ranger. And I just think about this, is that we often get in trouble or get hurt when we try and do DIY house projects that were intended for two people and we try and do it for one person. You know, Wes McKay, Wes McKay should probably never do a house project by himself. Should always be two people or three or anybody else but him. But we, we often get hurt or we often cause damage when we try and take a two-person job and do it one person. I can do it myself. I can do it. For example, hanging a ceiling fan. I don't know about you if you've perfected the art of hanging ceiling fans, but I just think it takes two people. I mean, I don't know how to really balance it on my head and screw it like this, you know, uh, up above me. Is that it takes two people. Because if you don't, it's going to fall down, it's going to take a sheet rock, it's going to fall on your head, it's going to do something. It takes two people. It requires that. We get, in, we get in danger or we hurt ourselves or somebody else when we take a two-person job that was intended to be a two-person job and try and make it a one-person job. Here's the thing, cross point, is that God has called us the Christian faith to be not just a one-person job, but to be lived out in a community of faith of people. And that when you try and do it on your own and say, I don't need other people, it's a one-person job, I can do it on my own, I, I don't need other people helping me, you are only going to do damage to yourself and to your faith. The Christian faith is to be lived out within the context of community of people. He has called us into community, into a church. And so it is important that we be connected to a local church. It is important that we be members of a local church. Now, hear me say this. I'm not saying that membership in a local church is going to save you. But membership in a local church, being, becoming a member of a church, it reflects your salvation. It evidences your salvation. It is a testimony to your salvation. Listen to one author when they say this. Membership in a local church is intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church. Church membership does not save. 
but it reflects salvation. And if there is no reflection of our salvation, how can we be sure that we are truly saved? Is that it is important to be connected to a local church because it testifies and evidences that we are actually part of the global universal church. And we need the local church in this faith journey. These, these three verses, they not only remind us of the need for community, but they also remind us the need of being globally minded. They, they remind us of the need of being globally minded. Is that we too often think just about ourselves, right? Just about what's going on in our little bubbles, right? I'm thankful that Crosspoint already has this kind of built into their DNA. You know, we have these baskets that are from Rwanda, and they remind us that our God is a global God. I just had y'all say it twice, right? A global God. Because we need these reminders. We need these reminders that we individually, Wes McKay, any, any other individual in here, we individually, we as Crosspoint, and we as the American church are not the center of the universe. We are not the only place that God is doing his work. God is doing his work across the world. And too often we can think that we are the only pebble on the beach. And that God is only doing a work here. No. God has called his people from every corner of the earth. From Canada, North Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Japan, Russia, Ukraine, Malta, Tuvalu, Italy, Ecuador. From all over the world. And if you think, well, God's doing the biggest and the best work here in the United States. Let me, let me, let me warn you. Let me, let me warn you. Here's what the statistics say. The fastest growing evangelical population. Guess who it's not? It's not the U.S. Guess what number one is? Iran. Guess what number two is? Afghanistan. Could you even think that? Would you even have thought of that? That's crazy. That astounded me. Is it that? Those places are where God's doing the work right now. So to think that we're the center of God's universe and we're the biggest and the best place of what God is doing in the world, man, we're totally wrong. We're not the center of the universe. So we need these reminders of being globally minded. We need, we need 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3 to take us and zoom us out and see God is not just doing a work here at Crosspoint. God's not just doing a work here at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the United States. It's doing a work from all over the world, ransoming a people for his name from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Revelation 5, Revelation 7, read those. That is what God is doing. And so after, in these three verses, after he reminds us of who we are, we are a church called into community to be in fellowship with one another and that we are to see ourselves in light of the global church, of the universal church, of what God is doing across the world. Now he gets into, okay, now as a local church, now as a church, what do you have together in Christ? This is who you are in Christ, a church redeemed by God's blood and brought into this universal church of what God is doing across the world. Now, what do you have in Christ, together in Christ? This is what will be point two, the grace of God in Christ. The church is the recipient of God's grace and gifts in Christ Jesus. You may have watched those old shows where, um, you know, the dad comes in at the end of the day, and right when he walks in the door, the mom comes up and says, guess what little Johnny did today? Some of you are thinking like, that's not a show, that's what happens in real life, Wes. <laughs> guess what little Wes did today? And the mom just comes out and she's, you know, steam's coming out her out her ears. 
just guess what he did today? And then she lays bare all of little Wes's misfortunes and failures and sins, every window that he broke, every punch that he threw, everything. Right when the dad walks in the door and his dad's like, oh, man, oh, that's heavy. Little Wes didn't have a good day. Maybe you grew up in a home like this. Maybe you have a home like this right now. Well, as it pertains to the Corinthian church, Paul doesn't do this. What's funny is that Paul, knowing the background of, in the backstory of the mess that Corinth has made and the problems that they have created for themselves, you would expect in the book of 1 Corinthians that the first thing out of the block, the first thing that he would say is instructions, critiques, change, all these things. But that's not what he does. In verse 4, the first thing that he doesn't say is, guys, I've heard the mess that you've made, and y'all are just terrible people, and you got to stop, and you got to start doing these things. Oh, he'll get to there, but he doesn't start with it. No, what does he do in verse 4? The first thing that he says is thankfulness. Knowing everything, everything about the Corinthian church and the mess that they've created, the first, first words that he says is, I give thanks to my God always for you, church in Corinth. That's what he does. He thanks God for the church. And this is not uncharacteristic of Paul in his other letters, but it's unexpected here. With everything that he knows about them. He doesn't just come in guns a-blazing with critiques and instructions of what they should do. Rather, he knows all the problems and he still acknowledges God's goodness and grace that he has shown to the church in Corinth. He's able to find the beauty in the rubble. right? And so what does Paul have to be thankful for this church? You're like, man, I don't, you know, I, we read through this book of Corinthians and it, it doesn't sound like there's anything to be thankful for them. But actually, Paul is actually able to see lots of things that he's thankful for. And particularly, he's thankful for God's grace that he has shown to them. He doesn't praise the Corinthians for anything that they've done, anything that they're going to do, or anything inherent within them. He doesn't praise them for anything like that. No, he praises God for the work that he has done in the Corinthian church and the grace that he has shown them. That's what he, that's what he thanks God for, for them. Anthony Thistleton says it like this. The focus of Paul's thanksgiving is the gracious deed of God, not the qualities which the recipients of this grace possess in and of themselves. He totally thanks God for the work that God has done in the life of the Corinthians. And so this grace that the Corinthians received shows itself particularly in gifts. That the grace that they've experienced has resulted in gifts. The church of Corinth and the church of of God's uh, people have been given gifts. And we'll talk a, a little bit about this more as we get into chapter 12 and 14 where we get gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues, gifts of hospitality, generosity, all these different things. We'll, we'll kind of work those things out. But particularly here, he acknowledges that in the grace that they have received, these Corinthians, is that some of the results have been is that they've been given gifts. That's how God has graced them, graced them with gifts, and particularly the gifts of speech and knowledge. Speech and knowledge. This is the benefits and the effects of God's grace shown to them in Christ Jesus, is that they have gifts of speech and knowledge. But here's the question. Here's the question. Why? Why does he, why does he just point out speech and knowledge? Why don't he point out any of the other gifts? There's, other, there's a ton of gifts in chapters 12 through 14. But why does he point out speech and knowledge? Well, this. I, I think the reason is this, is that you'll see in the coming chapters is that speech and knowledge are the very things that are dividing the church. They are the very things that are dividing the church. 
is that these gifts that have been used or given to them are being used to divide themselves and put themselves into groups and factions. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 8. This will kind of explain the point. Is that Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So it seems that the knowledge that God has given to the Corinthian believers is that they are using it for bad means. They are using it to actually create kind of maybe a following for themselves, or they're using it pridefully, or they're using it arrogantly. They're trying to show that they're the smartest guy on the block. And that is not what the gifts were intended to be used for. Is that God has shown his grace to the church in giving them gifts to bring glory to his name, to edify the church. But we are aware of a world and a culture where we take good things and we can use them for bad purposes. Am I right? If you think about medication, medication was created to be a benefit and a gift to us, to help us. But listen to this statistic. In 2019, there was a reported 50,000 overdoses in the U.S. Using a good thing like medication for bad purposes. And so this is, seems to be going on in the Corinthian church, is that God has graced them in Christ Jesus with gifts, gifts that are to be used to bring glory to Jesus, but they are using it to actually bring glory to themselves. And that is not what the gifts were intended to be. They were intended to be used as instruments to build up the church, and they were intended to be evidence that they've actually received grace from God. That's what the gifts were supposed to do, to remind them, this is what... Look, this is testimony. This is confirmation what he says. Is that you've been enriched in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So the gifts were to be a testimony and confirmation that they've actually experienced the grace of God in Christ Jesus. They weren't to be used to create their own platforms. And so... The gifts that they've been given, that the church has been given, is not, it's not confirmation that they've arrived, that they've made it to the top, and there's nowhere to go but up. They're, it's not any of that. It's to show them that they come from God alone and not by anything that they have done, and that they are totally for to be used to bring glory to God and to edify and bring sanctification and growth for the church, to be used for that. This is why they're not lacking in any gift. God has opened the doors for them for spiritual gifts and His grace. And so, this God who has called Paul to be an apostle, He's called these people to be His saints, He's graced them with gifts lavishingly, and He calls them into the fellowship. He's also the same God who sustains them until the end. You look at this and it says, is that they're not lacking any gift, and these gifts are to be used as they wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this God is going to be the one who sustains them to that end. Is that this God who has called the saints, who has gifted the saints, is also the one who will sustain the saints. And that is something that we must remember, Crosspoint. This God who has called us, this God who has gifted us, this God is the same one who will sustain us to the end. We do not have enough power or grace on our own to do that. Only by the power and the grace of God. Will He sustain us to the end? He doesn't call us and gift us to forsake us. He won't abandon us. Could you think of a situation like that? I was trying to 
I was trying to think of a situation maybe where you got hired into a new job and the employer kind of threw you to the wolves and said, figure the job out on your own. Don't ask me any questions. You know what? You need to even figure out how you're going to get paid because I ain't paying you. Figure all this out on your own and, and don't, don't come and bother me. That's being hired to be forsaken and abandoned. And that is not what the God of the Bible does for us, for his church, those whom he has called. He does not call us to forsake us or to leave us on our own, but he calls us to sustain us and will sustain us to the end. That's what he will do. And so I want to point out one, a couple of key applications for us. Is that church, look at Paul. Paul had every reason to just rake the church of Corinth over the coals, to lambast them. Smash them for all the mess that they've created there. Yet despite everything he knew about them, Paul still thanked God for what he had done in them. Now, let me ask you this. If Paul can find reasons to thank God for the church in Corinth, can't we find reasons to thank God for the church at Crosspoint? For the church universal? Because... Let me just ask this. Do you find yourself being more critical of the church, of Crosspoint Baptist Church, you know, of the people God has established here? Do you find yourself being more critical of the church or thankful for it? Do you find yourself praying for the church or disparaging the church? Because look, let me be honest with you. It is easy to criticize the church. It is easy to critique it. It is easy to nitpick the church. The church has lots of problems. Here at Crosspoint, we got about 150 of them. And the biggest problem is standing on this stage preaching to you right now. I get it. We got flaws, we got issues, we got problems. But guess what? Despite those, Paul still finds ways to pray and thank God for what he has done in Christ Jesus for the church at Corinth. And so by the church, for the church, to bring glory to God and so that the church is built up in love. And so if you have the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality or the gift of generosity, whatever it may be, use the gifts to build up God's church for His glory. And that the gifts are just a reminder that we have been recipients of God's grace. So do you see yourself being thankful? Do you see gifts pouring out of you? Because the gifts, the results of God's grace, it, it will show. Recipients of God's grace will live transformed lives. And so Paul reminds us that we are called into community and that in this community we have been graced with gifts to use for his glory and for our good. And the last thing is that not only have we been called into a community, not only have we been given gifts, but we've also had a, a status change, a relationship change with Jesus. This is number three, the fellowship of his church. The fellowship of his church. The fellowship with God in Christ Jesus. The church has been called into fellowship, into the fellowship of Jesus, to be in fellowship with one another. Do you have that friend who is uh, always afraid of taking risks? Maybe you can think about that person. Who's always in your, in your friend group, you have the different personalities, and this is the guy who's always questioning everything. This is the guy who's always nervous. This is the guy who's always afraid. This is the guy who's always going to say, guys, we're going to break our leg. 
guys, we're going to break our arms. Guys, we're going to break our neck. Guys, we're going to die if we do that. You, you may be that guy. Always nervous, always skeptical. And they're always asking the question, how can you be sure? You know, you tell them, you're like, look, we're going to go do this. We're going to go jump off this waterfall. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine, Wes. I'm not saying I'm the guy. I'm just saying if I were the guy. We're going to be fine, Wes. We're going to be fine. How can you be sure? You can't be sure. You, you can't know that. You know that guy? The how can, I, how can I be sure guy? Well, you know, coming out of this section, going into verse 9, you can ask Paul, how, how can you know for sure, Paul? How can you know for sure? How, how can you know for sure that we aren't lacking any gift? How can you know for sure that Christ will return? How can you know for sure that God will sustain us to the end? How can you know for sure that he will present us guiltless on that day? How can you be so sure, Paul? And you know what he answers in verse 9? God is faithful. Let's say it one more time. God is faithful. How can you be sure, Paul? God is faithful. Enough said. Enough said. God has not changed from eternity past. He has always been faithful, will always be faithful to us, to his people. That's how I can be sure of those things. That's how I can know with a confidence, without a doubt, that those things will come true. Because God is faithful. Paul knows his Bible really well. He knows that from, from way back when, God has been faithful to his people over and over and over. Despite their faithlessness, he's been faithful to them over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to thousand generations. How can I know for sure all these things are true, that you don't lack any gift, that you will be shown as guiltless on the day of Christ, that Christ will return and bring all evil to an end? Because God is God is Look, this is not a moniker, this is not a gimmick, this is not like a cliche. God is faithful. He will hold us to the end and sustain us because he is faithful. And that this faithful God brings us and unites us and restores us into something that we've broken on our own. That he doesn't bring us into this random companionship, random relationship, random friendship. No, he says is that this God who is faithful has called you into the fellowship of His Son. The fellowship of His Son, Jesus. And just a side note, look at how many times Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is used in these nine verses. It's nine times. Nine times the name Jesus Christ is used over and over and over again. To remind us that if we are a church who has been called into a community of faith, who has been gifted, who has been called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, then everything that we do in our existence is based upon who? Jesus. We get away from that, we get away from what we're called to do and who we're called to be. Is that we are about Jesus. He is the nucleus of our existence. And this is whom we've been called into the fellowship of. Into the fellowship of Jesus. And this is a new status for us. This is a new relationship. Because if you remember what the Bible has said, particularly if you think about Ephesians 2, you think about all these other places, it's Colossians 1, is that before Christ, we were estranged from God. 
Before Christ, we were alienated from God. Before Christ, we are at enmity with God. Before Christ, we are hostile to God. But now, having been called by God into the fellowship of the Son, we now are beloved by God through Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we are now part of this fellowship of the Son. That's what we're about. That's what the church is about. We are part of this fellowship of His Son, Jesus. And now that we are brought into fellowship with the Son, now we are to be in fellowship with one another who are also in fellowship with the Son. Is that we are part of this fellowship of Jesus, and that is what we are known by. That is what we are about. Listen to what John says in 1 John 1, 3. He says, That which you have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with who? Us. With us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, guess what? Because you have fellowship with the Son, is that now we have the Holy Son. He has called you into fellowship with other people. He has graced you with gifts. He sustains you and is sustaining you and will sustain you to the end. He has brought us into fellowship, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus. And that for all those who call upon the name of the Lord, you can experience all this. The treasure trove is open to you this morning. Is all this that we have covered this morning, if you want this, it is open to you. And so this morning, you may feel, you may have come into this place, and your relationship with God can be in a number of different places here. Maybe this morning you walk in here, and you feel like your relationship with God is on the rocks. Maybe you feel like uh, right now you're, you're disinterested in God, disinterested in, in Jesus, not really concerned about Him or what He thinks. Or maybe you've given up on Him altogether. You could be in one of those places. And I, I'm glad that you're here this morning, despite feeling any of those things. Because you could have been a number of different places. But I want to implore you this morning, if you're in any of those places where you've kind of stretched out your arm and said, I'm just kind of done with Jesus disfellowshipped with him, don't really need him, I would just implore you and encourage you that that is a very dangerous position to put yourself in. It's a very dangerous position. Is that for those who are not in the fellowship of Jesus, you are estranged to God, hostile to God, living in darkness, suppressing the truth. And I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be deceived is that if you are disinterested in Jesus this morning, if you've disfellowshipped yourself with Jesus, you are not a neutral party when it comes to God. Is that if you've, you're disinterested in Jesus, you've disfellowshipped and you've turned him away and you've kind of said, I'm, I'm done with him. This morning, you are not a neutral party with God. You are at odds with the holy God of the heavens and the earth. But this morning, you don't have to leave that way is that you may have disfellowshipped yourself with Jesus and said, I'm disinterested. This morning, Jesus opens his arms wide and says, you can still find fellowship in me. If you call upon the name of the Lord, even today, you will be saved. That you can find salvation today. You can find fellowship with God and with his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Even today. You can be called his saint today. You can be gifted with his grace today. You can be forgiven of your sins today. You can be graced for all your failures today. You can be loved for all your hatred today in Christ Jesus.
You don't have to walk out the same way that you walked in here. You can walk out with everything that Jesus Christ offers you in this text by calling upon the name of the Lord. This morning, if you're watching online or if you're sitting in here, I implore you, call on the name of the Lord. He opens his arms wide to you to welcome you into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us.